Thanks, Brandon. As uh, Brandon mentioned, I'm a deacon of missional communities. And so before we open up God's word and take a look at it, I'd like to talk with you uh, about uh, a problem that is facing our missional communities. Uh, I, this problem is so great that when I talk to leaders, they tell me tearfully, I don't think I can do it anymore. There's just so much pressure, which raises the question, what is causing our missional community leaders to cry? Is it the pressure of pastoring their people? Is it the pressure of scheduling their socials? Is it the pressure of delegating their duties? What is it? I don't want to break any confidences here, but I think it's time we go public with this. What is causing our missional community leaders to cry is this. The opener question. You have no idea how hard it is to write one. It has to be humorous, but not too humorous. Insightful, but not too insightful. And when you say to yourself, this is the best opener question in the history of opener questions. It's just so awkward, isn't it? And to show you just how awkward it is, I want you to turn to the person seated next to you and answer this opener question. It's a pretty good one if I say so myself. What bird best describes you? All right, take one minute and tell the person next to you what bird best describes you, okay? All right, I hear some uh, squawking going on. I see some wings flapping. On a scale of one to 10, just how awkward is it? Think we got an 11 back there? I told you. And uh, since I asked the question, it's only fair that I answer it. The bird I want to be is an eagle flying high in the sky, but the bird I tend to be is an ostrich sticking my head in the sand. How's that for profound? But we cannot stick our heads in the sand anymore with this opener question problem. And so by the power vested in me as a deacon of missional communities, which trust me isn't a whole lot, we will now replace the opener question with the opener question. And because it is the opener question, I want you to at least try, just try, using it week after week after week. Because if we ask and answer it, it will not only transform our missional community, it'll transform ourselves and our world. Because the gospel really does change everything. So if you have a Bible with you, turn in it now to the Gospel of Luke. If you're new to the Bible, Luke is the third book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. Luke chapter 5, and you can find it on page 913 of the, what color is this? Is it purple or maroon? Okay, the maroon Bibles in the seats in front of you. Well, this morning, uh, we continue our series that we're calling Encountering Jesus. And the title of this morning's message is A Fisher Person Encounters Jesus. Just trying to be inclusive. In this series, we're exploring Jesus' invitation to follow him through gospel stories that reveal the surprising nature of God's king 
and God's kingdom. With that in mind, I think it's helpful for us to put these encounters with Jesus into the larger context of discipleship, not only in the Gospels, but also here at Soma. Here at Soma, to be a disciple, we must do what? Take a look. Say it with me. Be with Jesus, be like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. The past two years here at Soma, our focus has been on numbers one and two. But this year, our focus will be on number three, which raises the question, what did Jesus do? Yes, he died on the cross and rose from the dead, but what else did he do that we can also do? Well, I read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I came up with what can best be described as a what Jesus did list. Let's take a look. Jesus exercised people four times, Jesus healed people 18 times, and Jesus preached to people 36 times. And so this year, we're going to have you register for classes. And raise your hand if you'd like to sign up for the first one, the exorcism class. Anyone? Okay, (laughs) maybe one or two bold souls. Well, if those seem just a little, perhaps too advanced for you, I have good news. There is one thing that Jesus did more than anything else. In fact, he did this one thing more than 120 times in the Gospels. Any guesses as what that might be? Anyone? Did this more than anything else? Jesus talked to people. And to be his disciples, we must learn how to talk to people the way Jesus talked to people. To be more specific, we must learn how to have Gospel conversations. Now, the moment you heard those words, gospel conversations, my guess is a few of you developed a twitch, didn't you? Raise your hand if, like me, you've been part of a church or ministry that trained you to have gospel conversations using one of these. Uh, This one happens to be called the four spiritual laws. Don't get me wrong. I've led dozens of people to faith in Jesus using one of these. People in dorm rooms, people in Starbucks, people on beaches even. But as Brandon pointed out in the first week of the series, the gospel conversations that I had are different than the gospel conversations that Jesus had. And so today I want us to look at the very first gospel conversation that Jesus has in the gospel of Luke. And from it, learn three spiritual practices that will help us talk to people the way Jesus talked to people. The first spiritual practice is the practice of proximity. The practice of proximity. Let's pick up our story in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. As the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word, he was standing by Lake Gennesaret. He saw two boats at the edge of the lake. The fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. After reading that, we have to ask ourselves, why isn't Jesus preaching in the synagogue? After all, he is a rabbi. 
To answer that, we have to go back to Luke chapter 4, where Jesus' first sermon in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, it doesn't go very well. There in the synagogue, he's handed a scroll. It's the prophet Isaiah. And Jesus unrolls it and turns to Isaiah chapter 61. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to free the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus rolls up the scroll and says, Today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. So far, so good. <laughs> but then he identifies his listeners not as the oppressed, but as the oppressors, and they become enraged. We read in Luke chapter 4 that they get up, they drive him out of town and try to hurl him over a cliff. Good sermon. <laughs> Not really. So here in Luke chapter 5, Jesus is going on with what appears to be plan B. Instead of the synagogue, Jesus is preaching on the seashore, doing a little beach evangelism. But preaching isn't the only thing that Jesus is doing. Look what we read here in verse 3. He got into one of the boats which belonged to Simon and asked him to put out a little from the land. Then he sat down and was teaching the crowds from the boat. Notice there are two boats on the seashore. Do you think Jesus flips a coin and says, heads, I'm getting into Simon's boat. Tails, I'm getting into his brother Andrew's boat. No. After the good people of Nazareth try to hurl him over a cliff, Jesus makes a beeline to Capernaum, which just happens to be Simon's hometown. And then Jesus just happens to show up at Simon's house, where he just happens to heal Simon's mother-in-law. And there in Simon's house, we read in Luke chapter 4, verse 40, all those who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to him. And as he laid his hands on each of them, he healed them. Also, demons were coming out of many, shouting and saying, you are the son of God. And it totally freaked Simon out. And it happened right there in his house. And so from that point on, Simon is walking through the streets of Capernaum like this. When he sees Jesus, he says, don't make eye contact, don't make eye contact. And now here on the seashore, he's saying, don't pick my boat, don't pick my boat. You might say that Jesus is stalking Simon. But Jesus is engaged in the practice of proximity. Take a look. Like Jesus, to have gospel conversations with people, we must have proximity to people. Well, after Lisa and I moved into our first house, we began praying for our neighbors. One of our neighbors that God put on our hearts was Dave and Susan. We had a lot in common. They were from Iowa, we were from Iowa. They had a dog, we had a dog. And so we'd take our dogs down to the river and they would jump in the water, they'd swim around and play. We had so much fun. And yet, here's the problem. It's really hard to transition from a conversation about D-O-G to a conversation about G-O-D. Even though they have the same three letters, it's a really hard transition to make, isn't it? And so we got courageous, and we invited them to our church, to an outreach. 
that would have a clear presentation of the gospel. And so afterwards, we came back to our house. We had pie at our kitchen table. And finally, I had the courage to ask them, so, what did you think? Well, we thought it was great. And we thought the music was great. We thought the drama was great. We thought the people were great. We, we thought it was great. And so when it became clear that they would not be the ones to bring up G.O.D., I felt this little kick under the table. It was my wife, Lisa, saying, all right, pastor, time to preach. And so very subtly, I pulled one of these out of my pocket. And yet, all of a sudden, it just became so awkward. You see, I knew how to give a gospel presentation to strangers, but I didn't know how to have a gospel conversation with friends. And so I put this back in my pocket. And I felt like such a failure, like because of me, Dave and Susan were now going to hell. And so, unbeknownst to me, God was working in Dave and Susan's lives. And he was using the practice of proximity. To have gospel conversations with people, we must have proximity to people. I'm not saying that people are projects, but I am saying that people are process. And to be part of people's process, we need to ask God to show us how to get into their boats. Which raises two questions. Who are the Simons in your life? And how do you get into their boat? Well, inside the door of our kitchen cupboard, we have a three-by-five card. Actually, we have a couple of three-by-five cards. And on it, we've written the name of all our neighbors. Because if we're going to love our neighbors as ourselves, it's helpful to know their names. And to help you get started, I put a three-by-five card on your chair. And so if you could grab that, chair, that uh, card on your chair, and at the top, write the words, Gospel Conversations. And then I want you to number one, two, and three, and write three names of people with whom you can have one. And as you write down their names, ask God to help you get into their boat and engage in the practice of proximity. The second spiritual practice is the practice of empathy. The practice of empathy. Look at what we read here in Luke chapter 5, verse 4. When Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Master, Simon replied, we've worked hard all night and we've caught nothing. But if you say so, I'll let down the nets. Now, if you blinked your eyes, you missed the key to this passage. It's Simon's eye roll by which he silently says, hey, carpenter guy, where do you get off telling me to set out into deep water when every fisherman knows that fish are caught in shallow water? And what do you mean telling me to go out in the middle of the day when every fisherman knows that fish are caught at night? You might be the Messiah, dude, but stay in your lane. Jesus, just stay in your lane. But in a sign that Simon might have the makings of a disciple, 
What does he say after the eye roll? If you say so, I'll let down the nets. And that's the makings of a disciple. If you say so, I'll let down the nets. Now look what happens here in verse 6. When they did this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets began to tear. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so full that it began to sink. Now imagine the best day you've ever had. Let's say you're a healthcare worker, and one day you just come up with a cure for COVID that isn't hydroxychloroquine. So you come up with a cure for COVID, and you know that you're a shoo-in for the Nobel Prize. You can see the headlines now. Indiana healthcare worker cures COVID. You'd be jumping, you'd be shouting, thank you, Jesus, right? But look what Simon says here in verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me because I'm a sinful man, Lord. For he and all those who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish they had taken. Which raises the obvious question. Why isn't Simon jumping? Why isn't Simon shouting, thank you, Jesus? Why does he fall on his knees and say, go away from me, for I'm a sinful man? To answer that question, Jesus engages in the practice of empathy. And like Jesus, to have gospel conversations with people, we must have empathy for people. Well, after uh, my fail with our friends Dave and Susan, I stopped using this to give gospel presentations, and I began using this to have gospel conversations. It's a napkin, which you can find in most restaurants or coffee shops. To get the conversation started, I ask them, so, what do you believe? And I write their answers in the I believe column. Then I ask them, what don't you believe? And I write their answers in the I don't believe column. And by the way, I want you to notice who's doing the talking. They are. And who is doing the listening? I am. You see, to have gospel conversations with people, you don't need one of these. You need what? Two of these. Listen. Listen. I used the napkin to have a gospel conversation with a Jewish friend named Mark, who with his wife and family had begun attending our church. Turns out, and this often happens to be the case, Mark had already been speaking with a mutual friend who was also Jewish and showed him the Old Testament prophecies in Isaiah pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. And so Mark was already in his process. And so we sat down and I asked Mark, what do you believe? And he told me, I believe in the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, we're, we're almost all the way there. And I said, all right. You ready to follow Jesus? And he goes, oh, wait, not so fast. And then he told me, I don't believe in Scripture, creation, and hell. Turns out, uh, Scripture and creation weren't that big a deal. We went back into uh, the book of Genesis and saw that when God said, let there be light, there just might have been a big bang. And Mark was relieved when he learned that 
to believe Scripture, he did not have to disbelieve science. And yet here was what was so interesting. As Mark and I were talking about uh, Scripture and creation, he was calm and rational. But the moment we talked about how he became tense and emotional, I said to Mark, what about Hitler? He said, oh yeah, Craig, what about Gandhi? Back and forth we went, arguing. And finally I stopped, I listened to the Holy Spirit, and I asked him a question. I said, Mark, I I can tell this issue is very important to you. Help me understand. And Mark thought about it, and tears came to his eyes, and he finally said, it's my dad. Right away I knew what was going on. Don't get me wrong, they had their issues. But his dad had died earlier that year. And Mark believed that if he put his faith in Jesus, his dad would go to hell. Which isn't rational at all. What Mark believed would have no effect on his dad's eternal destiny. But rather than pointing out the fallacy, I asked Mark this simple question. Did your dad love you? He goes, yeah, he did. Mark, I have no idea where your dad is, but wherever he is, I know he would want you to follow Jesus. And with that, Mark looks at his wife and says, Craig, i got to go. And I thought, there we go again, another fail. With that next Sunday, I was up in front of church leading communion, and Mark walked straight up to me. And I looked him in the eye and said, is this for real? He goes, yeah, Craig, it's for real. And so he tore off a piece of bread. I said, this is Christ's body given for you. And then he dipped it in the cup. And I said, this is Christ's blood shed for you. Let me ask you a question. Did Mark make a rational decision to follow Jesus? No. Just like Simon, he made an emotional decision. Look back at verse 8. Simon is on his knees with tears running down his eyes. He says to Jesus, go away from me for I am a sinful man. Now, if Jesus pulled one of these out of his pocket, he could have skipped over the four laws and went straight to the sinner's prayer. I mean, Simon's on his knees. Go away from me, I'm a sinful man. But Jesus doesn't, does he? See, gospel presentations tend to focus on a single emotion, and that is guilt. But what if the guy you're talking to doesn't feel especially guilty about sleeping with his girlfriend? Matthew tells us that when Jesus sees the crowds, he has compassion on them because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. To those who were harassed and helpless with guilt, Jesus gives the gospel of justification. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. But what good news does Jesus give to those who are harassed and helpless with loneliness? What about the gospel of adoption? To all who did receive him, to those who received his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent or human decision or husband's will, but born of God. And what good news does Jesus give to those who are harassed and helpless with worry? What about the gospel of creation? 
Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Now, at this point, some of you are scratching your heads, or maybe yet you're crossing your arms. You're saying, Craig, are you telling us that there is more than one gospel? Yes and no. Let me explain what I mean. There is one gospel. And at the core of that one gospel is the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus. Period. But when Jesus preached it, he did not expect his hearers to swallow the entire apple in a single sitting because he knew they'd choke on it. What did he do? He sliced a piece of the gospel and offered the proper one to each person. To Nicodemus, Jesus sliced off the gospel of justification. But to Zacchaeus, he sliced off the gospel of adoption, knowing that if they taste and see that the gospel is good, they'll follow him because they're hungry for more. So let's get back to our story. But this time, let's engage in the practice of empathy to understand what Simon is really feeling. Look at, again, at Luke chapter 5, verse 8. Simon is on his knees with tears running down his eyes. He says to Jesus, go away from me because I am a sinful man. Reading his body language, we would think that Simon is feeling what? Guilty. But here's the problem is Simon is feeling guilty. Why does he tell Jesus to go away? After all, Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. I've read this passage over and over, trying to get not only to Simon's head, but more importantly, his heart. And this is the only answer that makes any sense, at least to me. Simon isn't feeling guilty. He's feeling shame. Guilt is what happens when we know up here that what we did is wrong. Shame is what we feel down here when we feel that who we are is wrong. And because of his shame, Simon is afraid that a holy God wouldn't want to have anything to do with him. And so just like the fish flopping around in his boat, Simon feels like he's all washed up. And so what piece of the apple does Jesus slice and offer to Simon? If you're here for our last series, you'll remember it. It is the gospel of adoption. A vocation. Don't be afraid, Jesus tells Simon. From now on, you'll be catching people. Then they brought the boats to land, left everything, and followed him. And this version of the Bible is gender inclusive, so we miss a little play on words that Jesus is giving us. Because of the gospel of vocation, a fisherman becomes a fisher of men. And to help us become fisher people, I want you to pull out that three-by-five card that we filled out earlier and engage in the practice of empathy. First, we ask God to help us get into their boat 
Now we want to ask God to help us get into our heart, their hearts, and ask ourselves this question, what are they feeling? Are they feeling guilty? Are they feeling lonely? Are they feeling worry? Or like Simon, are they feeling shame? And if those four feelings aren't enough, I've got 129 more feelings to show you up there. So take a moment and look at the names of each of those three people, and beside them, write down what they might be feeling. All right, my favorite feeling up there, by the way, is right in the middle, it's in the red, it's discombobulated, all right? You keep looking at that for very long, you'll get discombobulated. So to help recombobulate us, let's review. In this encounter with Simon on the seashore, Jesus teaches us three spiritual practices. The first is the practice of proximity. The second is the practice of empathy. But the third spiritual practice is the practice of theology. To have gospel conversations with people, we must do theology on people. And to show you what I mean, I want to do a little theology on you. Just like a good sermon, each book of the Bible has a big idea. And the big idea of the book of Romans is found in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Underline that word, everyone. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Now, if my goal was to shame you into having gospel conversations, that would be a good verse to use, wouldn't it? Because I can't tell you how many times I've had that verse used to shame me. What do you mean you haven't had five gospel conversations this week? Are you ashamed of Jesus? So they give you a three-by-five card, and they tell you to write down the names of three people, and then they're going to hold you accountable to do it, right? Okay, that's what I just did. Not really. I'm not trying to shame you. I'm trying to help you. And to help you have gospel conversations, we can't stop at Romans chapter 1, verse 16. We need to move on to Romans chapter 1, verse 17, because here's the key. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from, underline this, first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. When the Apostle Paul tells us that righteousness is by faith from first to last, he's telling us that salvation is not an event. It's a process with a beginning, a middle, and an end. The beginning of the process is called justification, which is salvation in the past tense. By faith in the gospel of Jesus, we have been saved. The middle of the process is called sanctification, which is salvation in the present tense. By faith in the gospel of Jesus, we are being saved. And the end of the process is called glorification, which is salvation in the future tense. By faith in the gospel of Jesus, we will be saved. That's what the Apostle Paul means when he writes that righteousness is by faith from first to last. To put it in another way, justification saves us from the penalty of sin. Sanctification saves us from the power of sin. And glorification saves us from the presence of sin.
there aren't three Gospels. There is one Gospel. And there aren't two Gospels. One that helps unbelievers go up to heaven and another one that helps believers live on earth. There is one Gospel, which is by faith from first to last, which raises a very important question. And this question is so important, I don't want it to be one of those rhetorical questions that I put up on the screen, and right away I give you the answer. And so I'm going to put it up on the screen, and there's going to be this long, awkward pause. And if I and the Holy Spirit have done our jobs, the light bulbs are going to go off, right? And you're going to know the answer. All right, are you ready for the question? How do we learn to have gospel conversations with others? How do we learn to have gospel conversations with others? How do we learn to have gospel conversations with others? We first learn to have gospel conversations with ourselves. And so on that three-by-five card, which, let's face it, most of you did not fill out, I want you to write three names. The first name I want you to write is your name. And your assignment this week is to have a gospel conversation with yourself. Below your name, I want you to write the name of a person in here. It could be a person in your missional community person in your discipleship group or a person in the seats next to you and you're saying don't make eye contact all right i'll write the name of my friend john he's in my discipleship group and your assignment next week is to have a gospel conversation with them and here's the key bit by bit little by little as we have gospel conversations with the person in here the people in here all of a sudden, we're going to understand and be ready to have what? Gospel conversations with the people out there. Why? Because we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Which brings us back to uh, where we started this morning, the opener question. If you want, you can gather around in a circle and describe the bird that describes you best. I think that was the question. You can describe the bird that describes you best. Or, instead, you can answer the opener question. Take a look at the opener question. Describe a gospel conversation you did or didn't have this week. Describe a gospel conversation you did or didn't have this week. Now, I know that did or didn't have is a little awkward, a little harder to remember, but it's really important because the moment we say to ourselves, we didn't have that gospel conversation we should have had, what are we having? A gospel conversation with ourselves. It's called repentance, which is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And so as we ask Jesus to help us have gospel conversations with the person in here 
And the people in here, finally, Jesus will help us and show us how to have gospel conversations with the people out there. Because the gospel changes everything. Well, when Lisa and I moved away uh, from our first house, one of our regrets was leaving Dave and Susan behind. We just felt like we hadn't done enough to reach out to them. But the two of us, and my wife in particular, prayed that God would show them their need. Because to be honest, we didn't know what their need would be. They were just so nice. Then one day, we received a letter in the mail in which they thanked us for being their friends. And then they went on to tell us that they had both become Christ followers and that coming month they were going to get baptized. And in the letter, they shared specifically how God had answered our prayer. Uh, Dave had a health scare, and it turned out to be no big deal, but his wife, Susan, was just devastated that she could lose her husband. And so she went to our church. She talked to the pastor who replaced me in my office. They were sitting there. It was so sweet. And he shared the gospel with her that Jesus was the better husband would never leave or forsake her. Jesus' sacrifice is better than your works. Jesus' forgiveness is better than your sins. Jesus' perfection is better than your plans. And Jesus' salvation is better than your shame. Jesus is better because the gospel does change everything. Will you pray with me? Father, uh, it's just a great morning to, to see that, uh, uh, that, uh, that tank down below and, and what it symbolizes. And um, Lord, by faith, uh, I pray that you would lay those people on our hearts and we would trust them with you. And uh, I pray that you would, before you open up their hearts, to you, I pray that you would open up our hearts to them. That, that we, would, we would care, and, and I mean that uh, in both senses of the word, that we would care about they, where they are in relationship to you, but, but perhaps just as importantly, that we would care about where they are in their lives. And Lord, I pray for all those things we talked about. I pray that you would help us engage in the practice of proximity. I pray that you would help us engage in the practice of empathy. Um, but I, I also pray that you would help us engage in the practice of theology, that we would be so adept, that we would be so uh, literate in the gospel as we apply it to our lives and the lives of people around us, that, that you would give us insight into how to apply uh, the gospel, how to slice that apple so that they could taste and see that the gospel is good. And so, Lord, this isn't something that we can do on our own. It's something that we can only do by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so I, I pray that you would fill us, that you would lead us, uh, but you would also excite us that we could become fisher men and fisher women, fisher people 
in your name. And we ask this in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.